Beloved, you know where to turn. Romans chapter 6. Please turn to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, and please stand for the reading of God's holy word as we continue in this marvelous epistle to the Romans written by the Apostle Paul, not only for the church at Rome, but for the church throughout the ages. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Please hear the word of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you would be pleased by your Spirit to work mightily through your Word, to communicate Christ to us, that we would hear the voice of Christ in your Word, that we would see Christ with the eyes of faith, that we would be united to Christ, that you would be pleased, O Lord, to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight for your everlasting glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. While living in Edinburgh, Scotland in the early 2000s, Marla and I enjoyed exploring antiquarian bookshops. From time to time, we would find uh, something special, uh, a literary treasure from centuries past. On one occasion, I came across a 1775 edition of Thomas Boston Sermons. Uh, at the time, I was actually writing an essay on Thomas Boston uh, for uh, the University of Edinburgh and New College, the, the Divinity School there. The volume is entitled, The Christian Life Delineated. The Christian Life Delineated. It's a treasure of 18th century Scottish Reformed piety, full of timeless biblical truth. And one of those sermons called God in Christ, the Hearer of Prayer, God in Christ, the Hearer of Prayer, Boston writes the following, quote, Prayer is made particularly for the pardon of sin. The daily cry at the throne is, forgive us our debts. If then he is the hearer of prayer, he is a sin-pardoning God. We cannot pay our debt, but God can forgive it. We cannot pay our debt, Boston writes, but God can forgive it and will forgive it to all that come to him in Christ for forgiveness. The pardon is proclaimed in the gospel, not to encourage presumption in any, but to prevent despondency in all. What glorious truth. What glorious truth. Though the debt of our sin is incalculable, a debt so large that we couldn't pay it back in 10,000 lifetimes, God forgives the full debt of our sin through Jesus Christ. He pays the full debt. He doesn't pay most of it. If you owed $20 billion and you only made $30,000 a year and someone said to you, hey, I'm going to go ahead and pay off 
10 of that, it wouldn't work so well. It wouldn't really help in the end. God forgives the full debt of our sin through Jesus Christ. He hears our sincere prayers for mercy and he grants it. He grants it, not so that we can continue in unrepentant sin. By no means, Paul says, but rather so that we can live in freedom, the freedom and power of God's grace, unshackled from the tyranny of sin. We can live for His glory as slaves of righteousness. That's what Paul's been teaching us in Romans chapter 6. Unshackled from the tyranny and the power of sin, we can live for His glory as slaves of righteousness. We've been set free to obey the Lord. We will never obey Him perfectly in this life, which is why we always come confessing our sins, but we know that God is at work in us by His Spirit and Word to sanctify us and to conform us more and more into the image of Christ and so that we die more and more to the indwelling sin that's still there. Sin no longer reigns in us, though it still remains in us. And in Christ, we are in a renovation project. You know, HGTV, I know some of you watch that. I know, I know you do. And, and, and you see these renovation projects. And it's interesting to see someone walk in this space, which is a complete disaster area. And then by the time the show is over, it's beautiful. And, then, and I know you do this. You start looking around your own house like, man, we need some work done in here. You see, we, we are all a renovation project. And when God saves us, He purchases us with the blood of Christ. He makes us his own, and he begins a renovation project called sanctification. Romans 6 is all about this. We are unshackled from the tyranny of sin and the condemnation of sin so that we can live for God's glory as slaves of righteousness, as his redeemed children. This is the Apostle Paul's message in Romans chapter 6, isn't it? A magnificent chapter on the doctrine of union with Christ and the blessed fruit of that union, namely that of sanctification and everlasting life. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 22. The apostle writes there, quote, Now that you have been set free from sin and have become, what? Slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and the end eternal life. Sanctification is the evidence that you are in union with Christ and that eternal life has begun. We taste eternal life now because we are united to the risen Christ. We taste of that blessed, unobstructed fellowship now as though through a mirror dimly, but we, we see it. And we taste it and we experience it, not in part, excuse me, in part, not in full, and one day in full. Praise God. We have been emancipated from sin's mastery and are now under the reign of a loving shepherd king, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners like us. 
Well, as we come to my seventh and final sermon on this marvelous chapter, we're going to give attention to verse 23, a familiar verse, which many of you would have learned in Sunday school as a child or in vacation Bible school, or perhaps you've learned later in life. It's a familiar verse, which serves as a kind of conclusion or summary statement for all that has been said from Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 to Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. Romans 5, 12 to 6, 22. This is a kind of summary statement or what one commentator calls the great antithesis. The great antithesis. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Once again, here we see no mention of a third way, only two. No third option, only only two that of death for sin and that of life in Jesus, that of death in Adam and that of life in Christ. Yes, as we've learned over the last several weeks, one is either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. One either still owes a great debt to God, needing to make payment for that debt, or by grace through faith, that debt, that great debt of sin has been paid for in full. The apostle punctuates this truth in verse 23, doesn't he? This morning, as we unpack this well-known verse, I want us to see with fresh eyes this morning the essential truth that this verse and this whole section sets forth about death and life, about judgment and salvation, about hell and about heaven. These are the great, this is the great antithesis we see in Scripture. We see no no purgatory. We see no option for living a life enslaved to sin, and then because of some religious connections or family connections or a few good works, you get time in purgatory to be purged of your remaining sin to one day go to heaven. It may be 10,000 years. It may be a million years. It may may be 10 million years. but, But perhaps after those many, many years of purging, you'll one day enter paradise. That's the way that many think about things but it's utterly and completely unbiblical. There are two ways, two options. There's a great antithesis here. Death because of sin, life in Christ. You'll see an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. The first point is this. The sure recompense of eternal ruin is sin. The sure recompense, the certain recompense of eternal ruin is sin. Again, verse 23, the first part, the wages of sin is death. This should be no surprise to those who have been with us in Romans from the beginning. It should be no surprise to those who know their Bibles. We've learned in chapter 1 and verse 18 and following, in Romans 1, 18 and following, that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
This is what's happening in our day. There are things that are clear, that are obvious, but man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. It's extraordinary to hear ordinary people and politicians with such mad rage responding to a ruling that will save the lives of children growing in their mother's womb. The rage, the illogical statements, the euphemisms that are used to describe such a horrendous act. You see, truth is suppressed in unrighteousness. It's what we see happening in the world all around us. And in chapter 2 and verse 6, we see that God will render to each one according to his works. To those who obey unrighteousness, there will be what? Wrath and fury. Wrath and fury. As much as famous evangelical ministers like Joel Osteen will seek to sanitize the Bible from the truth about God's holiness and justice, it still remains. You can ignore it. You can try to euphemize it away. You can try to, to come up with some kind of way to, uh, to mythologize these doctrines, but they remain in our Bibles. They remain true, and they are an expression of God's holy character. We have learned in chapter 3, after a litany of sins common to man are set forth, Paul writes that, quote, the whole world is accountable to God. The whole world is accountable to God. And in chapter 5, we learn that sin came through Adam and death through sin, so that all are sinners and all deserve death. But what do we know, dear ones, about this death? What does it mean? That the wages of sin is death. What death is he speaking of? We began thinking about this last week. It's not only physical death, but spiritual and eternal death. The death that's being spoken of here, the wages of sin is death, is not just physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death, what Revelation 21.8 calls the second death, the second death. And that brings us to three subpoints under this first point, that eternal death in hell is sure, it's certain. Eternal death in hell is sure. Hell is not a human device or invention to scare people into subjection or into good behavior. It's neither an ancient myth from a bygone era nor an outdated doctrine from the Middle Ages. Hell, the second death, is real. It is certain for those who die in their sins, who die with the unspeakable, immeasurable debt of their sin. Our Lord, our Lord Jesus spoke of hell more than he did of heaven in his earthly ministry. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. 
Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. You got the picture, right? This person is extremely wealthy. They are clothed in wealth. They enjoy their wealth with their feast every single day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. What is being implied here is that this poor man who had open sores being licked by the dogs that passed by and looked for scraps from the rich man's table was someone who lived with faith in God. See, what the world counts as so important and magnificent can be that which actually condemns a soul. Jesus goes on, the rich man also died and was buried. So the poor man died, the rich man died. Verse 23, and in Hades, being in torment, the rich man lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. He's saying, would you then send Lazarus back from the dead to speak to my brothers? But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have God's word. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Matthew 25, the last judgment. Jesus says this in verse 46, And these, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So this hell is sure. It is a real place, just as if you got in your car and and drove over to West Ashley or to Somerville. It's a real place. Those who die in their sins will go there. The second point about this eternal death in hell is that it is a payment for sin. Hell is a payment for sin. To mount a massive debt of sin against an infinite and holy God is to pay an infinite price. Paul then declares the wages of sin is death. Dear ones, when you owe the bank for any reason, you must pay back that debt. Sometimes that financial debt gets so large that for some, it becomes impossible to pay back. It becomes a great burden. The debt is too large. The interest for that debt is crushing. 
fact, the interest has gotten so big that you can't even pay that. And it overwhelms a person, bringing enormous stress and anxiety. Perhaps some of you have experienced this. In the old days, there was, called, there was what was called a debtor's prison for those who could not pay back what they owed. But you see, dear ones, when it comes to our sin, it must be paid for, either by us or by a mediator. It must be paid for either by us or by a mediator. God is holy and he is just and therefore he cannot, because he is the holy God, allow any sin to go unaccounted for. It is out of his character. He would not be God if he let one single solitary sin go unaccounted for. Our larger catechism summarizes these sobering points helpfully. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 89. What shall be done to the wicked at the day of judgment? Answer, at the day of judgment, the wicked shall be set on Christ's right hand and upon clear evidence and full conviction of their own consciences shall have the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them and thereupon shall be cast out from the favorable presence of God and the glorious fellowship with Christ, his saints, and all his holy angels into hell to be punished with unspeakable torments, both of body and soul, with the devil and his angels forever. Finally, as we consider this sobering subject, eternal death in hell is unspeakably horrific. How could we speak about hell without talking about this? Of course, in our own day, people will say things like, man, work was hell today. I've had a hell of a time doing this or that. Well, the fact is, nothing in this life is even remotely close to the unspeakable horrors of everlasting hell. People make jokes about it. They'd rather go there than to heaven if the two were real. But no one will feel that way once there. The Bible describes hell in a way that should strike fear in all who hear it. I remember one of my teammates when I played soccer uh, in Charlotte. Uh, one of my teammates gave his testimony, and I heard his testimony all the time because we, we always went to churches and high schools and soccer clubs, and we would share our testimonies with kids. And so I heard his testimony like a million times. You heard mine too. And he, he would share that when he was a young boy, he remembers hearing a preacher preaching on the doctrine of hell. And he would say that it scared the hell out of him. It scared the hell out of him. He was so afraid of going to this place, and he saw that there was a way out, that he deserved that place, but there was a way out through Christ Jesus. And so he looked to the Savior. But this eternal Death and hell is unspeakably horrific. It's described in the Bible by our Lord Jesus Christ himself as a place of eternal torment and fire, of weeping and gnashing of teeth and of outer darkness. It's a place of separation from God's loving presence, a place of eternal wrath and judgment. Some of you will know that hell is often referred to in the Bible as Gehenna from the Hebrew 
Hebrew geh, land or valley, and Hinnom, or sons of Hinnom. Gehenna referred to a valley near Jerusalem where wicked idolaters would throw their children into the fires of sacrifice for the god Molech, child sacrifice. Incidentally, when a culture becomes exceedingly wicked is when it sacrifices its own children to the gods of the culture. This Gehenna, this place would later become a desecrated place to burn trash. And the fires would always be raging, day and night. And it was a picture of what hell would be. Louis Burkhoff mentions four things about this eternal state in hell. First of all, a total absence of the favor of God. You understand God's presence is there because God's presence is where? Everywhere. There's separation from God, but separation from his favorable presence. An absence, a total absence of the favor of God. Secondly, an endless disturbance of life due to the complete domination of sin. Thirdly, physical pain and suffering in both body and soul. Fourthly, subjective punishment, such as pangs of conscience, anguish, despair, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. I will add one. There is no hope. There is always hope. This side of heaven and hell. This side of eternity, there is always hope. I remember reading a chilling illustration I believe it was by Thomas Watson, the master of illustrations, English Puritan. And he said, you know, if there was a pile of acorns that went up a mile high and you were in hell and every year you could take away one of those acorns and put it over here and eventually when all of those acorns were gone, you could enter eternal life. As hard as the suffering would be, as terrible and horrific as the pain you would experience, there would still be hope. Hope for something different. Hope for change. This is not hell, dear ones. Hell is a place of everlasting despair where there is no hope. Dear ones, this is where the gospel becomes so profoundly glorious and sweet to know what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did for us on Calvary. Because this, dear ones, is what Jesus went through on the cross. He literally went through hell for you and for me on the cross. He bore the wrath of God on the cross because our sins were upon him. He, the righteous one, bore our unrighteousness on the cross at Calvary. And while the physical suffering was immense, it was nothing compared to the spiritual suffering of the soul of the eternal Son of God in human flesh who bore the almighty, undiluted wrath of Almighty God. It's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's why in the Garden of Gethsemane he said, let this cup pass from me. 
but he didn't let the cup pass. He drank down to the very dregs. God's wrath and curse. He bore your and my sin and shame. Every single sin. Every evil deed. Everything that you and I, uh, that we should have done and didn't do, Christ bore that on the cursed tree. So much emphasis is placed upon the physical suffering of Christ in some Christian traditions. But in the Reformed tradition, we have always placed the emphasis upon the spiritual suffering, the soul suffering of Christ, who bore the sins of hundreds of millions of people. A number that we don't know, but God knows. And he died for us. Drank down to the very last drop, the infinite wrath and curse of God for our sins. He became sin for us. He became a curse for us. He bore God's wrath for us, becoming a propitiation on Calvary. He made that that, that walk to the cross, to Golgotha, people spitting on him and cursing him and, 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 and gnashing their teeth at him. It became a propitiation for us on Calvary. The wages of sin is death. And dear ones, he paid those wages. He paid that debt. For you and for me. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The free gift of eternal life in Christ. That is our second heading, a much happier heading. Eternal life in heaven is sure. God owes us nothing, we have earned nothing but judgment and debt. The free gift of eternal life in Christ is ours by grace through faith. And this is our first point. Eternal life in heaven is sure. Heaven, like hell, is a real place too. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It's God's eternal dwelling place where his holy angels and redeemed children will live in the fullness of joy forever and ever and ever. And that joy that we experience in in moment one will only increase so that in after 10,000 years, that joy will be that much greater because we will experience God that much more because we will grow to know Him and to love Him more and more and more for all of eternity. How can perfect joy become more perfect? I don't know. But it must be so if we are finite creatures. And we come into fellowship, unhindered fellowship with the sovereign God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we grow to know Him and to love Him more and more, which we will do. Jesus at the final judgment will say to the sheep, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Eternal life in heaven is sure. Secondly, eternal life in heaven is a free gift. We cannot pay for this with our good works. We do not assist with the payment of our debt. That's impossible. Even our good works are tainted by sin. You think of a child who wants to win 
the favor of their parent. And he's outside playing in the dirt and in the mud. And he comes in and thinks, hey, I'm going to wash the dishes for mom. And his hands are filthy. And he begins to wash all the dishes. And and he puts them up on the sink. And he's so proud. And he says, mom, look, I, I did the dishes for you. But there's dirt, little pieces of grass, little bugs all over. You see, the effort was to win the favor of a mother who already had love for the child. Love for the child. A child was already in the mother's favor. And this is what so many do today. They, they think, you know, when they're asked, and I've asked many, 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 many people this over the years. If God were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And they say, well, because I've lived a pretty good life. I've done good things. I haven't murdered anybody. Or I've only murdered one person. I mean, what's, what's the scale? What's the measurement? Well, it's all subjective, right? It's whatever your truth is. Your, that's so good for you, your truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. It does not work that way. What if your boss's truth was that you shouldn't get paid this week? You wouldn't like that, would you? No, this whole your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, it is absolute nonsense. And we see it clearly bear out when we apply it to certain situations that cost us. We cannot pay for salvation with good works. We cannot assist with the payment of our debt. That is impossible. Even our good works are tainted by sin. Christ, however, pays for it all. Notice what it says, that it's a free gift. Don't you love free gifts? I love free gifts, especially when they're nice. You mean... I don't have to pay for this? Thank you. This is what God gives to us in His Son. The free gift of eternal life. For all of eternity, we will sing before our God that salvation was a free gift. Thank you, O God, for this free gift. I did nothing to deserve it. I have no reason to boast. And forgive me for ever boasting in the life in which I lived on this earth. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which means that salvation is a free gift, which means that eternal life is a free gift. You'll perhaps remember Paul's argument back in chapter 4 that Abraham was justified by faith. Look with me there at Romans 4 and verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are are not counted rather as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. When you work and get a paycheck, 
You get that paycheck because you work. That's not how salvation goes. Salvation is a gift. And to the one who works but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. John Stott puts it this way. The only ground on which this gift is bestowed is the atoning death of Christ. And the only condition of receiving it is that we are in Christ Jesus, our Lord, that is personally united to him by faith. Salvation is a free gift. Eternal life is a free gift. Finally, eternal life in heaven is ineffably sublime. It is indescribably sublime. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 21. Revelation 21 and verse 1. Then I saw, John writes, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All the thorniness, all the challenges, all the suffering, all the pain, all the tears, God will make all things new. And then he says, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Oh, the antithesis. Oh, the contrast. Why would anyone want to go there? Why would anyone not look to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved by grace through faith? Why would anyone continue to hold on to their sin rather than receiving Christ? Here we learn that heaven is unobstructed fellowship with the triune God and unobstructed fellowship with one another. And the angels. Heidelberg Catechism, question 58, says this. How does 
the article, Life Everlasting, Comfort You, from the Apostles' Creed, answer, even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfected blessedness such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined, and a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. As we closed, we haven't already If you haven't already, repent and believe the gospel. It's being offered to you the free gift of forgiveness, imputed righteousness, and everlasting life. It's being offered to you. Repent of your sins. Believe the gospel. Receive him. Receive his forgiveness. Forgiveness of your great debt, a debt paid for not by silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Secondly, remember that Jesus is not only your Savior, He is also your Lord. Notice it says there, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is a prophet, He is a priest, and He is a king, and He saves us unto a life of gratitude unto a life of growing obedience. Remember the fruit of salvation that Paul mentions in verse 22, sanctification. Just as salvation is on God's terms, lest no man should boast, so is the Christian life. And so where in your life do you have ungodly patterns of speaking, of behaving, of thinking that have taken root? It's time today to repent of those sins. Where in your heart is unforgiveness? The, Lord, the Lord's prayer instructs us to pray, forgive us our debt as we what? Forgive our debtors. Forgiveness to others is the fruit of being forgiven in Christ. Finally, keep your eyes heavenward. Meditate on eternal life in Christ and keep an eternal perspective on all things. Remember where your ultimate citizenship lies. Don't let all of the tumult of the world distract you from walking with Jesus, that simple walk with Jesus, where you wake up, open your Bible, read his word, renew your confidence in what he is doing in the world, trusting that glorious message of the book of Revelation, namely, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. We can trust him and whatever happens and let us tell others about this free gift of eternal life that may be received by grace through faith in him. Five bleeding wounds he bears, says the hymn writer, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll invite you to take your hymnal and